Luke chapter 12 is really an amazing chapter, and we've already spent a couple Wednesday nights in it thus far. In the beginning part of the chapter, I would say the first 12 verses, you could say that Jesus talks to us about the right view towards persecution or opposition in our walk with him. Then in the second portion of it, he speaks to us about how to have the right view or the right attitude towards material possessions. And there was a lot to that section and very, you know, confronting to us in our day and age and in our own community. But then in the third aspect, he speaks now, the section we're going to give our attention to this evening, where Jesus speaks to us about the right attitude to have towards his return. And actually, there's a very good link between them, isn't there? Because especially between the idea of putting material things and our natural greed in the proper perspective, it has a great relevance towards this idea of being ready for the return of Jesus. I I won't say that everybody who isn't ready uh, for the return of Jesus is greedy or a materialist, but I would suppose that would be a common feature. You're just so happy with the things of this world that you're not longing for Jesus. You're not longing for his return and for the heavenly reality that awaits those who have put their trust in him. And so actually there's a great link between the concepts that he was speaking about previously in chapter 12, and now that we begin in verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, when he comes and knocks, that they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known, excuse me, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 36 Jesus said that we should be like men who wait for their master. The the idea that he's drawing on is a very simple and common one in the ancient world. You know, there are some cultures today, and it was much more true in the ancient world, that labor was cheap. And, And in these cultures where labor is so cheap, people just naturally have a lot of servants in the home. I'm not saying necessarily slaves, although in some culture that might be the case. But no, just servants in the home because labor is so inexpensive. So the idea here is of a household. In the household, there's a master to the house, but there's also many servants in the house. And the master is away at some business. And the illustration Jesus used, the master was away at a wedding, but he's going to come back to his house. And he needs to find the house ready, prepared, the servants at their work when he comes back. And Jesus is saying it's a blessing, it's a good thing for those servants to be ready for the return of their master. Now, if they're going to have their focus now on the return of the master, it speaks to us about our great need to be ready for the return of Jesus. Friends, this is something worth putting our attention on. And I suppose right here at the outset, I suppose in my notes, I had it to talk about it later on in the message, you know, sort of build up to it. But sometimes you just throw that out the window and say, let's just get out the door right away. Let's just, let's just confront it head on. 
there are people who are disillusioned because Jesus hasn't returned yet. When I gave my life to Jesus as a young teenager in the mid-1970s, giggles from some, as a young teenager in the mid-1970s, there was such an expectancy of the return of Jesus. I mean, it was palpable. People were expecting Jesus to return. And there are not a few people who are disillusioned because they said, you know what, everybody was all excited about Jesus coming in the 70s or whenever, and he didn't come then. Now, my my simple response is, okay, I understand how you were disappointed that Jesus hasn't come yet. I'm a little bit disappointed that Jesus hasn't come yet. He can come any time as far as I'm concerned. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can't come too soon for me. But on the other hand, I I simply want to say, was it a bad thing for you to live in expectancy of the return of Jesus? Or was it a good thing? Did, Did it breed an excitement about the Christian life? Did it help you to be more holy, more focused on the Lord, more excited about serving him? I think it's a very healthy thing to have an expectancy of Jesus' return. And I believe that Jesus in every generation gives people some reason to believe that he's going to come soon because he wants us to believe that he's coming soon. And so I, I just don't really accommodate the idea that we should be depressed or cynical or discouraged because Jesus hasn't returned yet. I'll tell you what, the only thing I know for certain is that today we are one day closer to the return of Jesus than we were yesterday. And that should just make us happy. And people say, well, why didn't Jesus return back then when everybody was so excited? Well, just think about this. Let's just say, and I'll just throw out a date. Let's just say Jesus would have returned in 1978. First of all, there are quite a few people who weren't even born yet. But I don't even want to talk to you people. (laughs) If Jesus would have come in glory... In 1978, how how many of you would have never come to Jesus? An awful lot of you, right? Many. Now, I would have been in. So, look, it's fine with me. But do you see that attitude? It's kind of the attitude, you know, sometimes when people move to another place that they really love, they move there and they fall in love with the place, and then they say, and I don't want anybody else to move there. It happens a lot, doesn't it? Well, it's kind of that way. Okay, now that I'm ready for the return of Jesus and I'm right with him, okay, now you can come, Jesus. But you see if there's any sense in which it seems, and I only say it seems that Jesus delays his coming. I'm not going to say that Jesus is delaying his coming, but it might seem that way to some people. If there's any sense in which it seems like Jesus delays his coming, it's for one reason. It's so that more people can come into his kingdom and more people can be spared from the wrath to come. So all I can say is be ready. Be ready. When's the last time you thought about it? Jesus Christ would come soon. I need to be ready for his return. I need to be living a life that brings him glory right now. Because there's things that I can't do once Jesus returns and I'm united with him in glory. Do you realize that when you're with Jesus in glory in heaven, you're never going to be able to talk to anybody about Jesus and lead them to the Lord again. Your evangelism days are over once you're in heaven. Once you get to heaven, 
you will never be able to courageously bear suffering and discomfort for your Lord ever again. Those days are over. There are so many things that we have the privilege of being able to do right now that we won't be able to do in heaven. We should give our full attention, focus to those things now, making ourselves ready for his coming. So that's why he says in verse 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. What does he mean by that? Well, the idea behind this phrase, I think, is very well expressed by the New International Version. It says this, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Be ready to move. Uh, loins girded has the idea of, of you taking up the robes that they would wear back then and sort of fastening it around your waist with the belt so that you're ready to move, ready to work. Your lamp's burning so that you can see what work needs to be done. You're ready to move. You're ready to act. You're not falling down or falling asleep on the job because there is a great reward. I would say in the words that Jesus spoke to us right here, starting at verse 37, almost a mind-blowing reward for being ready. Let me read that to you again. Verse 37. I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Jesus says to us that for those who are ready at his return, it's as if he's going to come to them and serve them. Jesus, would you really do that? Would you stoop down to serve me? Would you wash my feet? Would you feed me a meal? I should be serving you, Jesus. I'm the servant. You're the master. But Jesus says, no, as a display of my love and of my true nature as a servant, I will serve those who are ready for my coming. That's mind-blowing. And therefore, he says, verse 40, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We all know the embarrassment of being called on when we're unprepared. Maybe, you know, company shows up at the house and the house is a mess. Unexpected guests drop over. Uh, you know, you, you find out, you show up to work and something was expected of you that you forgot. Uh, all kinds of things. As occasionally happens to me, you forget that you have an appointment and you don't show up for it. By the way, if I, you ever make an appointment for me and I forget about it, do not take it personal. It's happened to more than one person. I won't say it's chronic, but it's not totally unusual. So look, these guys, they're an embarrassment, aren't they? I was supposed to be ready for something. I was supposed to be anticipating it, but I'm not ready. So Jesus says this is the most important thing you could ever be ready for. Just like a thief never announces the exact time of his coming, you'll know that that you shouldn't expect to know the exact time of Jesus' coming. So be ready. He'll come, as he's indicated, as the thief in an unexpected way. Verse 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord... Do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant to whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. 
But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware and he'll cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes will be beaten with few for everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more this little section begins with peter asking a question okay jesus this whole business about being ready now do you mean that for everybody or do you just mean it for us the special 12 apostles and some people have kind of had a trouble picking out what jesus's exact answer is to peter's question But I think it's included in this idea that Jesus said that everybody should be, as he said in verse 42, like a faithful and wise steward or manager. In a sense, Jesus is saying this. I'm speaking to everyone who wants to live their life in readiness as a faithful and wise servant of mine. Everybody who's a servant or a steward of what Jesus gives to them must be ready for his return. But might I say it should be especially true of those who are in some kind of ministry or some kind of place of leadership among God's people. You better be ready. If you're going to call yourself a servant of God, then you better be ready for his return. But notice this in verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Friends, Jesus did not mean that in a good sense. A poor steward lives without the expectation of his master's return. And it shows in several areas of his life. Now, we'll talk about those areas. But again, let me just remind you, Jesus is speaking of a steward, a manager. And it's this idea. Let's say you're managing finances for a corporation. Shouldn't you manage those finances in such a way that if you were to be audited, the books would be good? Friends, here's the idea. You're going to be audited. You will. You'll be called in for an audit of your life. Here's the only problem. You don't know when it's going to happen. So live every day with your books, so to speak, in preparation. Now, there's some people who don't. And in verse 45, he talks about those who do not live in this preparation. The first thing he says about those who say, my master delays his coming. In verse 45, he says that they begin to beat the male and female servants. Those who aren't ready for Jesus' coming mistreat Jesus's other servants. Friends, one of the great ways you can be ready for the return of Jesus is to love your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I I hope we never get very far away from that very simple message. Because if we do, then what are we? Without love, we're nothing. So how can I be ready for Jesus's return? Well, look, I think it's fine for you to study the prophecies of Daniel. And it's wonderful for you to research the book of Revelation. And it's great for you to make prophetic charts and compare and this and that. And to read the newspaper. I'm not saying do all of those things. That's fine. But don't you ever forget just to love your brothers and sisters. Isn't this the wonderful, most wonderful way to be ready for the return of Jesus? The second way he describes there in verse 45 is he speaks of those who just eat and drink. 
In other words, they're just preoccupied with the cares of this world. There's just something about the busyness and the routine of the day, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. It just has its own momentum, its own cycle, that it's very easy to get caught up in it all. And you never take a moment to say, listen, I've got to live my life like Jesus is coming back. Now, please, I'm not trying to suggest for a moment that the answer is for us to retreat somewhere to a monastery or a cloister. No, no, no. Jesus wants us involved in the daily life. But listen, our involvement in daily life is filled with the faithfulness of saying, I want to be found being faithful to Jesus just like I am right here, right now, today. One of the great things you can just simply do is to do your duty focused on Jesus. That's another way to be ready for his return. So first, love. Secondly, do your duty focused on Jesus. And third, I just got to mention it right here because he says it in verse 45. He mentions the guy who says, my master delays his coming, goes out and he gets drunk. Be sober. Don't give yourself over to intoxication. Now, Jesus clearly connected this readiness to his return with a life of love, spiritual focus, and self-control. Likewise, that heart that says, my master delays his coming, it's connected to this kind of low, compromising, fruitless, or lacking in love kind of life. And friends, I know, I know that there are people who are weary of waiting for his return, or they're cynical about the return of Jesus. But this is exactly the attitude that Jesus warned against right here. Exactly. In the perception of some people, Jesus is delaying his coming. But friends, I just want to say, that's a bad attitude to have. Don't say that Jesus is delaying his coming. Say, Jesus is coming soon, and I need to be ready, and you need to be ready. And let it light a little fire under you, under me, and give us this idea that we need to have a sense of urgency in the way that we live our life for God. Our attitude should be Jesus is coming soon, so we want to rescue people from the judgment that's going to come upon the world in the very last days. But notice this, verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not, Looking for him, not looking for him. Look, here's the great message. Ready or not, Jesus is coming. He's going to come whether you're ready for him or not. So that's why you need to be ready. And when he comes, I'll just put it plainly because I don't think I'm going beyond the text here. If you think I'm going beyond the text, then text in a question. You know, we got the number for you. But I think the Bible tells us that those who are not ready for the return of Jesus will be punished in some way. And those who are ready for the return of Jesus will be rewarded in some way. Notice this, what he says in verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Can can I just kind of relate that for you here? The more you know, the more you're accountable for. Some of you are saying right now, I knew I shouldn't have come to this Bible study tonight. (laughs) Why couldn't I be doing something else tonight? 
I've just made you all more accountable. You've heard the message as as clear as anything from Jesus' words. And, And Jesus is telling this so that you can take it in, so that you can say, yes, Lord, I want to be ready. But how much more guilty is anyone if they really knew it, if they had it explained to them in a way that was very easy to understand Yes, I need to be ready. And at the same time, they said, well, but I'm not going to get ready. That obviously is something very worse than the person who never really knew that they should be ready. He continues on, verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, on, five in every house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus is really putting his finger on one of the things that often makes turn. And it's that refusal to divide in any sense. It's that refusal to separate. Notice what he began this section with, verse 49. He says, I came to send fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish that it were already kindled. Now, this is a very interesting passage because people wonder, what exactly is the fire that Jesus referred to here? And actually, I've heard three good suggestions as to what the fire may be. Some people believe that the fire Jesus spoke of was the judgment to come because fire is sometimes an idiom of judgment in Hebraic thinking or in Hebraic writing. Other people think that the fire that Jesus spoke of was the spread of the good news and the coming expansion of the kingdom. You know, that couldn't happen until he went up into heaven. And so Jesus says, I'm so anxious for my gospel to spread across the world like a wildfire. That might be true. But I'll give you a third suggestion, which I think is probably has a little more weight to it than the other ones. The idea that the fire Jesus spoke of here is the power of the Holy Spirit that could only come after he had accomplished his work on the cross. You know, Jesus spoke in another passage of a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it's no accident that when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in that very unique way on the day of Pentecost, that the emblem of the Holy Spirit upon them was a tongue as if it were a fire over their head. Jesus is saying that the coming of the Holy Spirit will be like a fire that comes upon the earth. And Jesus is saying, I wish it was happening right here, right now. But it's not going to happen, notice what he says there, until the baptism that he has to be baptized with is accomplished. Now, what does he mean by that? You say, well, wait a minute. We saw it way back earlier in the Gospel of uh, Luke. Wasn't Jesus already baptized? What's he talking about here? Ladies and gentlemen, baptism in the Bible isn't just the act of, of putting somebody under the water as a spiritual illustration, excuse me, as a physical illustration of what has happened to them spiritually, of their cleansing, of their death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. Though, by by the way, I can't resist saying a word about baptism. On Good Friday, we're going to have a baptism service right here. And I, I just want to encourage you. 
that if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you really do trust the Lord, you've put your trust in Jesus, then would you please, as an act of obedience to Jesus, get baptized this Good Friday? We'd be very pleased to do this for you. And and I, I just think, I think we should get away from the idea that it's some option in the Christian life. I'm just going to say it very plainly. Jesus commanded you to do this. And, and it's just not good for us to say, well, this commanded Jesus. Yeah, this commanded Jesus. Nah. You know, he's our Lord. He's our master. Now, some people are tripped up because they feel like they have to achieve some sort of worthiness in their Christian life before they could or should be baptized. Listen, if you're genuinely a believer, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you know that his life-changing power has come into your life, then you're ready to be baptized. And let's talk to a pastor about it and do it on Good Friday. But that's another word about baptism. That's not the baptism Jesus is speaking about. Baptism was also a concept in the biblical thinking, the idea of being submerged, being immersed. And Jesus was going to be submerged in suffering, submerged in agony of the passion to come. Ladies and gentlemen, he speaks of the baptism that he's going to be baptized with He's speaking symbolically of the suffering that he's going to endure at Calvary in not a very long time after Luke chapter 12. And friends, in this baptism, he's going to be buried. He's going to be submerged in suffering. He's not going to be sprinkled with suffering. It's not going to be just like a little dab upon him. It's going to be like an ocean that he's plunged into. And Jesus said, that has to happen first before this fire that I long to be kindled upon the earth is kindled. And so he says, verse 50, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus was distressed until his work on the cross was accomplished because he knew the good that would come of it. He said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, He was anxious to go to the cross, not because he was a masochist, but because he knew that's what God the Father had planned for him. And out of love for his people, he was anxious to fulfill that which the Father had appointed for him. And so he says, you've got to be ready for this. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to make this clear. Mostly, in most of the time, the way that Christianity works in our individual life is it reconciles us to our family. Mostly it it heals families, but not always. There are occasions where to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ means you're going to be rejected by your family. And by the way, you shouldn't be the one rejecting your family because you're a believer. But they may reject you. And if they do, all my heart, all my sympathy goes out to you. But I would simply ask you to bear it bravely as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And and to pray for your family and to love them. Please don't ever return evil for evil, especially with your family. If they treat you badly because you're a follower of Jesus, then love them in return. But please recognize God has called you to live this out in a powerful and costly way. Now, verse 54. Then he said also to the multitudes, 
Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern the time? That's a powerful and very challenging statement Jesus makes in verse 56. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but you can't discern this time. He rebuked the people of his days because the signs were around them, yet they ignored him. They should have understood because of the prophecies in Daniel that the Messiah would come. They should have understood because of the credentials of his ministry that the Messiah had come. They should have understood because of the glory of his preaching, because of the witness of John the Baptist, because etc., etc., etc. The signs were there, but they refused to see them. Jesus' listeners knew this. They knew that when clouds formed on the west over the Mediterranean Sea, you were probably going to get rain. They knew that when a wind blew from the south, a warm wind from the Arabian desert, a heat wave was on the way. In the same way, Jesus is basically saying to them and to us, look around. You'll see the signs of my coming. You'll see reasons to be ready for my return. I want you to notice something in verse 454. He said this to the multitude. He also said this to the multitude. I like that. It says that. Did he only tell his disciples to be concerned for the signs of the times? No. He said this to the multitude. He said it to everybody. Look at the world around you and discern the signs. Now, friends, again, I know what some people say. They're weary of, they say, well, you know what? Uh, This was predicted because of the signs way back in 1970 or 1980. And then world conditions changed. Everybody was convinced that the communist world was going to bring forth some ruler or antichrist or something like that. And it didn't really happen that way. It did it on and on and on. And now the world's changed. What do you say now? I say, let's look for the signs of the times today. And I'll tell you, this is what I do know. I don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return, but this is what I do know. I know the Bible describes certain political, certain spiritual, certain economic, certain cultural conditions of the very last days. And as I look around on the world, I see a match. I see the fact that the stage is set for a rebuilt temple necessary to fulfill the prophecies of the abomination of desolation. I see that the stage is set for a world-dominating confederation of nations, an heir to the Roman Empire. I see that the stage is set for a political and economic world leader to arise, the the sort of single political leader who's going to lead such a world-dominating confederation of nations. I see that the stage is set for the kind of false religion that the Bible says will dominate the world in the last days. And I see that the stage is set for the kind of economic uh, system that the Bible predicts for the very last days. It's there. Now, look, if you were to ask me, well, David, does this guarantee that the return of Jesus is very soon? No, it doesn't. It's possible that for whatever reason God has... God may say, no, I'm going to wait another 30, 40, 100 years, whatever it is. But I'll say this. 
then God would have to recreate very much the same kind of conditions there are in the world in another 30, 40, or 100 years. Because all we can say is that the stage is set. Lord, your coming could come at the drop of a hat. We must be ready. Therefore, verse 57. Yes, and why? Even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you that you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. So Jesus says to us in verse 57, judge yourself what is right. Doesn't it just make sense? I I used the illustration before. You're going to be audited. Jesus is using a little bit different metaphor here. You're going to appear before the judge. And he says very plainly, don't you think it's smarter to settle out of court? You you have a great opportunity to plea bargain before your judge. Because I I just want to show you something. Look, I'm not a legal expert. But I will tell you this, you're not going to win in this court. It's not going to turn out well for you. Your only hope is to plea bargain ahead, and you plea bargain ahead by taking the settlement that Jesus himself offers because he took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. And so he says, can't you figure out that this is right? Verse 58 says, make every effort along the way to settle with him. It makes sense to do this, and we should have an urgency to do this. Why? Because in verse 59 says that if you get thrown into the prison, so to speak, you shall not depart from there till you paid the very last mite. And this is a very sobering note for us to conclude on here tonight. I wish I had something happy or you know, cheerful to conclude on, but this is very sobering. Jesus here reminded us of the great penalty of not settling with God before the day of judgment. All of this presses upon us the urgency to get right with Jesus now and to live with readiness and anticipation of that time. Because when he says this, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might in verse 59. Jesus alludes to the idea that in the punishment in the age to come, there's a price to be paid. Friends, I I just want you to be aware of this. There is a price to be paid in hell. And this is the reason why. And I say this with a very sorrowful heart. I am not happy about hell. I, I don't question God's wisdom. I don't question God's plan. But this is a terrible thing that people will face, such judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible makes it very clear. Hell is eternal. It speaks about it constantly in those terms. It says that the punishment of hell is eternal just as life is eternal in heaven. It says that the torment of hell is forever and that the fires of hell are not quenched, burning forever, and that the unjust have their own resurrection, presumably with bodies suited to endure the punishments of hell. Now, this is a terrible idea, but it's true. Now, why is hell eternal? Because there's a price to be paid. And Jesus said, you're going to stay there, speaking to somebody who rejects Jesus. You're going to stay there until the last might is paid. By the way, the might there is used for the very smallest coin 
that was in circulation in that day, like the widow's mite. Here's the idea. An imperfect being can never make a perfect payment. And that's why hell is eternal. Because the debt is never satisfied. That last might is never paid. And so it has to be paid continually throughout all ages. Ladies and gentlemen, that is something very sobering. And might I say, it's, it's awful to think about. But you know what's wonderful to think about? A perfect being took the judgment in your place. And he reaches out to you and to everybody. And he said, that which you could never satisfy in yourself, because I am perfect, I have satisfied it in me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's what Jesus says to the entire world, to you and I. He's the perfect one who took the judgment that we could never take. Here's the bottom line. At the end of it all, there's only two places in the universe where sin will be judged. Either at the cross at Calvary or in the fires of hell. And it's as if, I don't want to act as if this accurately really, I'm just using this as an illustration. But it's as if God comes before you and he says, choose. Where do you want your sin paid for? I did it at Calvary. If you'll put your love and trust in me, it'll be satisfied there. But if you refuse that and choose to cling to your sin, then I'll, I'll respect your choice. And you can pay for it yourself forever. Father, I pray that this very sobering word would make us ready for your return. Lord, these are heavy things to think about. And Lord, it's true that the the idea and the truth and the the character of hell, it it makes makes me a little uncomfortable. Lord, I can't deny what your word clearly says. I simply say, Lord, bring many in. Bring many in, Lord. Bring in those ones, Lord, that we've been praying for for so long. Bring in our relatives. Bring in our friends that are on our heart. Bring in many just in the next few weeks as teams go out to State Street. And we hope for a great in-gathering on Easter Sunday. Lord, bring many in. Because this isn't fooling around, God. So much is at stake. Make us aware of the times and aware of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.